Father, we come before you this evening. It is our privilege to worship you. And we do gather here this evening to worship you, Lord. We praise your name. We lift high the exalted one, Jesus, who died for us on the cross. We just thank you so much for the privilege and the blessing of being adopted in your family and being called sons and daughters of the Most High. Lord, we have little ones. Precious children. Lord, these little ones don't know you. They haven't placed their faith in you. We pray, God, that you would open their eyes this week to see their need for you. We thank you for the privilege that we had with quite a few of them at VBS to share the gospel with them, to connect with them, to build relationships with them, to begin a relationship. We thank you for giving us those relationships. Father, we pray, Lord, that those seeds that we began to plant in their hearts and minds Four weeks ago, the first week of July, we pray, Lord, that you would just continue to water those seeds this week. For all the other kids that we're meeting for the first time, we pray, Lord, you'd open their hearts and their eyes to see their need, their desperate need for you in their life. And for many other kids, Lord, this is our first time to meet them. Lord, we pray that you would give us favor in their eyes. We pray, Lord, that you would give us favor in the eyes of their moms and dads. We pray. God, that our first impression would be one that ultimately glorifies and exalts you, that they would taste something of the goodness of your son in interacting with us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to make a good first impression. And we pray, Father, that in that good first impression, at the same time that we could share with them the good news of your son, we pray that your spirit would convict their hearts, bring to their mind their realization of their need for you, Lord. We pray, Father, that from start to finish in every aspect of all that we do this week, that you would be glorified and that you would delight and take pleasure in what we do this week. Father, we pray that it would just be a fun time, that we would have a lot of just silliness and laughter as well. Lord, we do want to enjoy each other, but we want to enjoy each other for eternity. And so we pray, God, that you would make that happen above all else. How, Father... We love you so much, and we just thank you so much that we know you. We thank you, God, for bringing us into a relationship with your son. As we look at your word this evening, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see and understand exactly what it is that David is saying when he says, I will praise you, and help us to be a people who are all in with all our heart to worship you and to praise you. Help us to be people who will to praise you the way that David willed to praise you. We, we ask you, Lord, that you would do that tonight for us as we look at Psalm 9. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The title for the sermon this evening, as you read in the bulletin, is How to Fight Fear and Anxiety Through Faith. I'm not really gifted, per se, at coming up with sermon titles. We come up with sermon titles to kind of give you an idea of what it is that we're going to be talking about, but sometimes it's really difficult to come up with a really good sermon title that will fit in one line there on the front bulletin. 
Uh, Mariah isn't looking for a 30-word sermon title. She's looking for five to six-word sermon title. And so sometimes we, we try to come up with ways to try and condense it all down. Psalm 9 is not a psalm that can be easily condensed. Psalm 9 is not a psalm where you can just come up with a quick, pithy sort of title statement that will summarize the whole thing in a nice, neat nutshell. It does deal with anxiety. It does deal with fear. But ultimately, it prescribes the remedy for that is ultimately worship, worshiping the Father. There's a connection between Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. Psalm 9 and Psalm 10, David wrote both of these psalms. They're both connected, related to each other. Psalm 9 deals primarily with enemies outside the nations, with the nations in general that reject the Father, that reject God. Psalm 10 deals primarily with individuals within the nation of Israel who aren't true in their walk with the Lord. All of the Psalms, Psalm 1 to Psalm 150, all of them will touch on our emotions. All of them will touch on, the, on God above. All of them in some way will provide assurances for uh, trusting in the Lord, hoping in the Lord, believing in the Lord. And in that sense, they all, all of them, will have something to say about fear and anxiety and faith. So when you come up with a sermon title that says, how to deal with fear and anxiety through faith, you could easily ask the question, are we talking about Psalm 9 or any of the other 150 Psalms? I mean, what kind of a sermon title is this? It's the most generic of all types of sermon titles, if I could be perfectly honest with you. Nevertheless, we're going to jump in. Psalm 9. When I was just graduating high school, I had a 1994 Isuzu uh, Rodeo sport utility vehicle. It was my pride and joy. For kicks and giggles, one afternoon, shortly after graduation, I decided that I, as an 18-year-old young man, could make it run better. And so I started to disassemble the engine. Yeah, it wasn't the best of ideas. I took it apart. I figured it out. I began to study and come to some, uh, some understanding of internal combustion engine. And then when I put it all back together again, it didn't start. I had taken three weeks and bought a couple of different specialized tools, all just to play with it, all just to disassemble it under the pretense that after having understood it better, somehow I had the wherewithal to make it run better. Now, we are coming to the end of what the last 50 years, half century, of man engaging the inner psyche of man, the field, the study of psychology and psychoanalysis in which psychologists and psychiatrists, I mean, we're coming to the end of the golden age, and who knows, it may still continue. It seems to me that we're coming to the end of it with the rise and the advent of postmodernity and and the influence that that is beginning to grip us with, but we are coming to the end, maybe, of, of what you might call the golden age of man picking man's brain apart, taking it apart to try and figure out how it works and how it ticks under the notion, the pretense that they can make it work better, that they can make us believe or hope or have some sort of meaning or greater satisfaction in life without God. Now, don't misunderstand me. There is some value in psychology and psychiatry. There is value in understanding the human brain and how it works. Those are things that are worthwhile pursuits of study. But if you think that as a man you can take apart another man's soul and figure out how to make it work better, you're gravely mistaken. When disassembling the Suzuki, the, sorry, the Isuzu Rodeo, 
I took it from functioning perfectly well. It takes me from point A to point B. And when I was done with it, thinking I could somehow make it do what it was already doing perfectly fine, somehow thinking I could make it do that better, it didn't do it better at all. It didn't work at all. Not only did it not take me from point A to point B, it wouldn't even turn over. And the reality is, for all of our so-called advances in psychology and psychiatry, for all of our dissecting and analysis, for all of our taking apart and looking at the bits and the pieces of the human soul, we're not actually bringing any greater joy into the hearts and the lives of people. And for all of the bits and the pieces that we're taking apart, man is still broken. He was broken to begin with, and for all of our dissection and analysis, he doesn't work any better. We still have the same fears, the same anxieties, the same struggles, prescriptions for antidepressants and anxiety medication, all this sort of stuff is just as high. In fact, it's higher now than it ever has been. And the problem for all of that is what all 150 Psalms talk about. We don't worship the one who must be worshipped. That's Psalm 9 in a nutshell. Look at what David says. Psalm 9, verse 1. He says, I will... Now, if you're reading the ESV, it'll say, I will give thanks. If you're reading King James or New King James, it says, I will give praise In context here, it's talking about a heart of worship. It is talking about a heart of grateful adoration for God. He says in Psalm 9-1, I will give thanks or I will give praise to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name almost high. Psalm 9 is so complex, I can't actually do justice to every verse in this psalm in the course of a 30-minute sermon. I'm going to give you three broad themes that are traced throughout, and you'll notice them as we continue to pick our way through. But first off, notice the fact that in the psalm, what is clearly portrayed is that the world in which we live is broken. It is a fallen world. It is a spoiled world. It is spoiled and it is broken as a result of man's sinfulness. That is a thread that runs throughout the whole psalm. Theme number two, God and God in righteousness, I should say, will ultimately triumph. He will be victorious. He will conquer. He will reign supreme. Thread number three, in the meantime, until God reigns supreme, the wicked will enjoy a short-lived season of flourishing. But this psalm serves as an admonition to the wicked that their season of flourishing will be short-lived. And this psalm is written by David, a man who understood the vicissitudes of life, the ups and the downs. This is a guy who knew all sorts of heartache. He was friends of the crown prince, Jonathan, only to watch him die on the field of battle. He was chased after by the king, King Saul, persecuted, hunted, wanted for his life. He was mocked and ridiculed by his own wife, the princess, He was a man who was betrayed by his own son. He knew a lot of lows. At the same time, David experienced a lot of highs. He experienced being crowned king of Israel. He experienced being friends with the crown prince, Jonathan. He experienced marrying the crown princess. 
he did enjoy those benefits and those blessings. He, he had the highs and he had the lows in the midst of all of it. Here in Psalm 9, he says that he will worship, he will praise God. When we look at Psalm 9, I want us as a church to ask the question, with regards to our worship, are we willing to worship the Father? And I don't mean that in the sense of, okay, I guess I, I'm okay with it. I guess I'll go to, to worship God. I mean, you have to twist my arm a little bit, but I'll, I'll come. You know, you don't have to twist it too hard. I mean it in the sense, have we volitionally resolved in our hearts that that is what we are going to do, whether we feel like it or not? As you reflect back on the course of David's life, through the ups and the downs, through the good times and the bad, what does he always do? He worships. He is worshiping the Father in the good times and in the bad. He writes many of the Psalms. He is constantly composing, putting pen and ink to paper, and writing songs of adoration, songs of lament, songs of praise, songs of thanksgiving. Over and over again, he is worshiping. And Psalm 9 says right here, David is saying, I will, I have resolved, I have committed that I'm going to worship God. That's what he says. I am going to worship God. Now, I don't ask this question necessarily in a condemning sort of way. I'm not, I'm not asking to saying, you know, we do a bad job of resolving to worship the Lord. And quite the contrary. I think, I think that we as a church do a great job to worship the Lord. I don't know how we, you empirically measure that if you look at church attendance or uh, coming to church in terms of the attendance records. I mean, we, we're doing a great job showing up week in and week out and worshiping the Lord in terms of our overall number of attendance. But the question is, as we come to worship the Lord, numbers can be sometimes deceiving. When we come to worship the Lord, are we coming to worship Him as a routine formula that we've just always been taught to do and we just come because it's what we always do? When we come, are we coming because it's just sort of a half-hearted thing, we don't, we don't really feel like being here, but we don't have any place better to go, so we're going to be here, but we're not actually all in? Or are we passionately devoted to worshiping God? And that's the essence of what David is saying. When he makes the statement, give thanks or give praise, that's in the emphatic. It's in, it's in, the, it's in the imperative. He's going to. It's, a, it's an urgent sort of cry. It's, in the Hebrew, it's the PL. It's the emphatic sort of Hebrew tense verb there. He is going to passionately, devotedly worship the Lord. But that's preceded by the statement, I will. At some point in time, David said, it doesn't matter what happens, it doesn't matter whether I'm going through high times or whether I'm going through low times, I'm deciding, I'm choosing, right now, I am making a choice that I am going to worship God, and when I worship God, I am going to be passionate in doing it. So often, when we encounter problems, when we encounter problems in pastoral ministry, Whenever we encounter struggles, whenever there's a particular sin or an addiction or some struggle that's going on, 
Sometimes the danger is, is we look to the scriptures for counsel, and they do provide counsel. When we look to the scriptures, we say, well, what does the Bible say about this particular sin? Or what does the Bible have to say about this particular addiction? And we start to microanalyze. We start to pick it apart. We start to get right down. This is what's going on in the heart. This is what has captured you. This is what is leading you astray. But at the end of the day, we can understand all of that and still be broken. Because we are called to worship God. That's what he created us for. It's what we are meant to do. And we have to resolve that we will be passionate in the doing of it. David's statement here in verse 1, I will give thanks, I will praise, I will worship. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves tonight, First Baptist Church, is are we that kind of people where at some point in time, we decided, we came to a point where we just said, I'm going to go to worship God. I'm going to do it, whether I feel like it or not, whether my heart is happy or whether my heart is sad, whether I feel energized or whether I feel drained. Regardless of that, I will to go and be passionate about God. Have we made that decision? David says that he will give thanks He will praise, he will worship, and the object of his worship is the Lord. He's going to worship the Lord, and notice what he says. He's going to do it with his heart. He's going to put his heart into it. As you're looking at the text there, what have I left out? His whole heart, with all that he has. He has resolved that he's going to praise the Lord. He's going to do it. And he's going to do it with his whole heart. The object of his praise is going to be the Lord. The action of what he's engaging in is worship, passionate worship. And he's going to give everything he has. All of him he's going to put into it. And that's what we're talking about here. The problem is that we'll sometimes approach the Lord half-heartedly or as a practice of routine. We'll do those things but we won't give him our full undivided attention. We won't give him our full undivided worship. We won't exalt his name, glorify him with all that we are. We'll just sort of go through the motions. We like the scriptures. We like what the Bible says, but we are easily captured by many other things because we're not giving all that we have to God. We're not truly pouring out all that we are for him. And that's when we begin to look other places for satisfaction and contentment. But David had resolved that he was going to give all of himself to the Lord. Notice what he does in his worship. Second part of verse uh, verse 1, he says, I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. He's going to take joy and happiness from God, and he's going to exult in him. Some of you are like, well, what does that mean to exult? The best I can describe it This will only work if you're a sports fan. I am a Dallas Cowboys fan. I cheer for the Dallas Cowboys NFL football. When they score a touchdown, I am happy. I exult in their scoring of a touchdown. I cheer. It produces an automatic joy in my heart. Notice what David says here. He's going to exult in the Lord. He says, I will be glad and exult in you. God is going to make him happy. God is going to bring him joy. God is going to bring him contentment. And then he says, I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. 
All that David is touching on here is that at the core issue, the the number one issue, the, the answer to all of life's problems, all of it comes back to an issue of worship. It always comes back to what we're going to spend our time exulting in, rejoicing in, delighting in, praising, and worshiping. At the heart of all of life's problems is that we, as humanity, don't worship the Lord. The greatest injustice on the earth, and there are many of them, whether stealing food from the poor while countries starve and go into famine, whether ignoring the rights of the unborn while abortion is propagated all throughout Western civilization. I mean, you, you talk about any just cause, any social cause that's out there, the number one injustice that trumps all other injustices, and if we got this right, it would fix everything else. The number one issue in all of life is this. We don't worship the Lord. All of our problems are worship problems. If we struggle with fear and anxiety, we need to refocus on the Lord. We need to worship the Lord. I had a fellow in my office once, and he said he obviously had some anxieties and some struggles, and he was on antidepressants. And he said, I'm, I'm just gripped with fear and worry, and there were a couple of things that were really worrying him. And as I was talking to him, it became apparent that he worried about his worry. And I said, listen, just stop worrying about all that. Stop worrying about your worry. I said, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to go and passionately worship God. You come to church on a Sunday morning, I want you to just forget all your worries and all your fears. I want you to just trust the Lord. He's going to handle all of that stuff. He's sovereign. He's in control. You just put all that in his hands. You say, God, for this next hour and a half that I'm at church, you're in control. You're in charge. You're going to, you're going to be responsible for all of that stuff. And I am just going to give you all of my heart right here in church on a Sunday morning for an hour and a half. I said, that's all I want you to do. Don't worry about your worries. Put them in the Lord's hands, and you just come and focus. And the moment you start to have those thoughts creeping back into your head about these different anxieties that you're having, I say, I want you to take control of those thoughts, put them out of your mind, and continue to focus on God. A week later, he comes to me and says, best hour and a half I have had in a long time. I said, I want you to do that every day. I want you to get up, have a 30-minute, 40-minute quiet time in the morning, I want you to spend time. I want you to take all your anxieties and all your cares. I want you to hand them over to the Lord. You just focus on praising and worshiping the Lord, reading in his word, getting happy in God, exulting in Christ, worshiping him every day. And you just see what happens to those fears and those anxieties, those worries that plague you. And of course, it took time. He said, well, you know, I did a little bit better this week. For that hour and a half, it was pretty good. For that 45 minutes in the morning, it was pretty good. And stuff still continued to bother me through the day. I tried to address things. But over time, more and more, he came to a place where he recognized God isn't just in control for the hour and a half on Sunday morning. God isn't just in control for the 30, 40 minutes that I give him in the quiet time in the morning. God is always in control. And as long as I'm walking with him, whatever the difficulties are, whatever the struggles may be, I know he'll get me through them. His issue was a worship issue. David doesn't have that problem. He has decided through the highs and the lows, he will worship and exult in God. 
Now, for the remainder, there are two things that I want you to see here, two things that David draws our attention to. One of the things that concerns him are the enemies hurting God's people, hurting him, doing wrong. The other thing is whether or not he will be with the Lord. And the answer to both of those issues you find here in this psalm, God is going to address the enemies, and yes, David absolutely can count on resting in the Lord. Verses 3 to 8, he talks about God's power, the fact that God is in total control. He says, when my enemies turn back, starting in verse 3, they stumble and they perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Verse 5, you have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you have rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. David looks at the sweep of human history from his vantage point here about a thousand years before the coming of Christ. He looks at prehistoric civilizations, countries, nations, peoples that are lost to you and me, whose names you and I don't even know who aren't even recorded in the history books. And the best we can do is look to archaeologists who are digging up these artifacts from long-forgotten, long-bygone countries. David understood that these countries had perished. He understood that there were people, nations, that no longer walked the earth. But there was still a God who has been there from the beginning. And his statement is, the enemies may come. The enemies may come, but they won't last. But do you know who will? The Lord will always last. He is from everlasting to everlasting. And he can worship the Lord for his everlasting dominion over all the earth. His throne is a throne of righteousness, and his throne is a throne of justice. And David can rest in that. Look at what he says here. He finds protection in the Lord knowing that. Verse 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. David is saying, yes, I can rest in God. I can find safety, and peace with the Lord. Even though the enemies are coming, I can rest in God. Even when times are good and I'm happy, I can rest in God. Now, is David content to stay there and just say, I've got it all figured out. Just walk with God and you're all good. I know this. That's all that matters. Zip my lips, throw away the key, have nothing further to say about it. Well, we're only on Psalm 9. And it goes on for 150 more. So the obvious answer to that question is no, he kept talking about it. But he keeps talking about it right here in this song. See, what comes right after verse 10 is verse 11. And notice what he says here. He shifts his focus away from himself to the people who are listening to him. I have found that I need to worship the Lord. I have willed that I will worship the Lord. I have found that God will address the enemies. God will take care of the problems. And I can find safety and peace and protection in God. And do you know what? You can too. 
how does David begin this exhortation to those who are listening to him? He started off worshiping God. And now notice what he says here, verse 11. What does he tell his audience to do? Worship God. You got problems, I got problems. I dealt with my problems by worshiping God. Guess how you get to deal with your problems? Focusing on the Lord and worshiping Him. He says here in verse 11, Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people, the peoples, His deeds. What's David's advice to you and me? Do what I'm doing. Worship God. Tell other people to worship God. He goes on, For he who avenges blood is mindful of, of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. He says, I want you to sing praises. God doesn't forget and I'm going to sing praises. And he says, God, be gracious to me that in the gates of Zion, the gathering place within Jerusalem, where the people come together for important matters, there, in the gathering place, in the gates, I can worship you. That's his whole praise. That's his whole request. He has started off with worship, he has moved to God's power. He started off with praise. He's moved to God's power, and he has talked about God's ultimate protection for himself. And then he shifts to those who are listening to them. His encouragement is for them to praise, for them to worship, and he's going to repeat the same pattern. He started off with his own praise, his own confidence in God's power, and his own assurance of God's protection. And now he encourages you and me, praise, trust in God's power, and to rest in God's protection. Look at what he says here. He turns to us, you guys praise. Verse, uh, verse 15, you guys trust in his power. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. He's saying, this is going to happen. Your enemies, those who oppose the living God, they will be destroyed from off of the earth. And then he comes to protection again. For the needy, verse, this is verse 18, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. The Lord will not forget you. Though you experience tragedy and though you experience heartache and turmoil now, you will not be forgotten forever. For a season, it looks like the wicked will win. For a season. But they won't. But the Lord's people will be with the Lord forever. They will endure. He will not forget you. That is an amazing promise. And then the last two verses, he closes with a petition to God. Please, Lord, do this. He says, Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. David's Psalm 9 says, I started off with praise. 
I understood God's power, and I am resting in his protection. And the same exhortation is to you and me. Praise, worship, rest in God's protection, knowing his power. It makes the statement here, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. We find within verse 18 a description of the believer. That someone who is needy, not self-confident, not self-righteous, someone who needs, and they need God. Someone who's poor. They don't have wealth. They're not someone necessarily who can take care of all of their own needs. They don't have provision for all of their own requirements in life. Well, hey, that's you and me. That's us. If we didn't think we needed the Lord, we wouldn't be here tonight. We're here because we want to worship. We're here because we need the Lord. And that practice is pivotal. In medicine, and Dr. Tom will, I'm sure, be able to add additional comments to this, but in medicine, the best treatment is preventative medicine. If you have a problem and you have to go to get it worked on, they can fix it, but ultimately the best thing for you and me is to not end up in the operating room. Am I right, Dr. Tom? If we can avoid surgery, that's all around the best way to go. If we can exit, he's a cardiovascular surgeon, so he works on the heart and the cardiovascular system. So if we can keep our cholesterol low and exercise and diet and all of that sort of good stuff so that our ticker stays strong, ultimately that's better than eating a bunch of potato chips and sitting on the couch, indulging in Twinkies and watching the football game. You know, and then when you're 60 or 70, you know, you need to go see Dr. Tom in the, in the operating room. That's not the best way to go. Worship, we talk about anxiety and fear and faith. The best preventative medicine for enduring through the bad times and the good times, the best preventative medicine is worship. Letting God be the center of your life and worshiping Him. What we have in the act of worship is a treasure which I think sometimes because we do it on a weekly basis, we might take it for granted. We might not realize just how amazing it is to worship the Lord. Gina Welsh is an author, Harvard-educated author who is a devoted atheist. She does not believe that God exists, and she hates him for it. She is that committed to her atheism. She decided that she wanted to write a book about us kooky, crazy evangelicals, so she went undercover and spent two years being totally involved and invested in Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia, Dr. Falwell's church, and she wrote a book, and you can read it, and I recommend that you do, actually. I highly recommend you read this book. Title of it, In the Land of Believers, An Outsider's Extraordinary Journey into the Heart of the Evangelical Church. She didn't believe in God, but she faked it for two years, convincingly. She went through a new members class, she got baptized, she wrote a testimony, she swore up and down all the good things the Lord had done in her life when she surrendered her heart to Him in faith. She got plugged into a small group Bible study, she even went on mission trips. She even, as a part of this mission team serving a church in Alaska, led some poor kid to the Lord. And the kid probably did get saved, but not because of Gina Welsh. 
At the end of it all, she confessed to all of these people in this church that she'd become such close friends with that it was all a sham, that it was all a show, that she did it to write a book. And the book was a bestseller. It was really good. I recommend you read it. It's an interesting to see an outsider's perspective on us. In the concluding chapters of her book, she says, talking about you and me, talking about Christians, quote, They seem to have, as I came to appreciate in time, a kind of bottomless spring that keeps their happiness lush. Now, what's she talking about? She's talking about worshiping God. They seem to have a bottomless spring that keeps their happiness lush. She's a good writer. She goes on to say, I started to believe just for a moment that maybe this Jesus was real, that this whole thing was authentic, and for just a moment, I wanted some of it for myself. Talk about hardening your heart. She goes on, what I envied most about Christians wasn't the God thing. It was having this community gathering every week. She's talking about worship. It was having this community gathering every week where it was a touchstone for people who shared the same values, where it was a safe place where they could be frank and honest with each other about their struggles, and it was a place where there was no room for loneliness, for they took joy in each other, they took joy in their God, and they could feel that there was really something there. That's an outsider who does not worship, saying how much they wished they could worship with us. Church, worship, worship, worship. As David says in Psalm 9, I will praise God. And my encouragement to you tonight, I'm preaching to the choir. Nevertheless, I feel that's the thrust of this psalm. Psalm 9, verse 1. I will worship the Lord. My encouragement to you is to make that decision concretely, absolutely resolved to worship God. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you that you have given us the privilege, the beauty, the joy as Gina Welsh says, this bottomless spring which keeps our happiness always lush. We thank you, God, that you have given us the worship of your Son. And I pray, Father, that we would exalt more and more in him and that we would worship him. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.